Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. So we sat down to record this, and turns out she has a lot to say in Chapter 4, and we went off on a number of rabbit trails and tangents. So we have a Part 1 and a Part 2. So this is Part 1 of Chapter 4, Parents as Inspirers. The life of the mind grows upon ideas. So an act, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. I did not look that up. Of all the things of all I looked the things up. You looked up. Is this a, are we doing a sword drill here? You have a computer. That is so not fair. So an act, reap a habit. But I don't see who it is attributed. Ralph Waldo Emerson. There you go. Hey, poets are good for something. Is he a poet? Yes. Okay. He's a very well-known poet. Clearly. I think he was near when Thoreau was a poet and Walt Whitman. I think those were, they were all contemporaries. Back to the whole, I just don't. We. We, we don't do poetry. Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1803 to 1882. And we're going to be doing a lot of dates with people in this one. So just as a reference, Charlotte Mason lived from 1842 to 1923. Okay, so she was she was around right at the right at the turning of that century. Yeah, she she encompassed the whole thing. Right. And and a lot of her writings were from right around 1900. Right. I mean, this one's 1904. Yeah. So she starts off with a summary of the preceding chapter. It rests with the parents of the child to settle for the future man his ways of thinking, behaving, feeling, acting, his disposition, his particular talent, the manner of things upon which his thoughts shall run. So who does this? The parent or those that they depute? And that deputation should be intentional. It should be. I was going back to like chapter one. Right. Where they, they are given this office of parent. And it comes with the roles and responsibilities mm-hmm. therein. And they can have helpers and they can give some of that away. But if they lose it, they lose it. Well, but once given away, it's irretrievable. For the most part. Yeah. What do they sow? Ideas. So she she does the same thing that we've talked about before. She gives one idea and then refutes it. So... Towards the, towards the bottom of the page here, she says, uh, we have perhaps got over the educational misconception of the tabula rasa. Latin for blank slate. There you go. <laughs> I was going to say, by concept, I'm guessing it's the blank slate theory of educating children, which is Pestalozzi's theory? Pestalozzi is Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi. He was Swiss, lived from 1746 to 1827. And he did learning by head, hand, and heart. And what's really cool, he almost eradicated illiteracy in Switzerland. Really? In the 18th century. He That's he impressive. had a heart for teaching the poor and did all sorts of things. He was going to be like a doctor and then failed at that and went into politics, failed at that, went to be a farmer and failed at that. And <laughs> like he just, he kept doing thing after thing after thing and finally ended in education with four children. And 
he was influenced by our good friend Jean-Jacques Rousseau. There you go. Well, to those who can't do, teach. (laughs) I feel like he's the embodiment of that. She said his main idea was to prepare the vase rather than fill it. And then moved on to Froebel, who his idea was to work with each of the individual aspects of the nature of the child and, and do each of those individually. And Froebel is Friedrich Wilhelm August Froebel. And he was a student of Pestalozzi. He actually was living at his orphanage school for oh, a couple of years. So he was 1782 to 1852. And he said, you know, children have unique needs and capabilities. And he was the one who, like I said, coined kindergarten. And his original concept of kindergarten is that games are the life of the child. They did singing and dancing and gardening and self-directed play. And sounds great. And like she said, kindergarten is a vital conception. So, yeah, that dives us into the next section, the kindergarten, a vital conception. What was interesting is as I'm reading through Wikipedia about these these two educators, Pestalozzi and Froebel, one of their big things was that they were taking the children who were currently factory workers and giving them back their childhood. Interesting. And, and one of Pestalozzi's things was he saw that they, they had their catechism classes, but it wasn't enough to give them uh, an education, a full education. Well, because catechism is a part of an education exactly but it's not the whole of an education yeah so i i found that was fascinating as she's looking at these other educators Mm -hmm. the the one line here that stuck out to me is perhaps indeed this of the kindergarten is the one vital conception of education we have had hitherto sounds like she's saying that kindergarten is the one... The one good thing that's come out of this? The one good thing that's come out of all of this. And that she's going to take it and run with it and be like, yeah, kindergarten, where kids play, it's great. Do that. Singing, dancing, gardening, self-directed play. And if I remember right, that's a lot of what she says small children should be doing. I don't think we've gotten to what she says about small children yet. No. Or just... If I remember right from you talking about other things she's mm-hmm. written in other books. Yeah. And then, like we were talking about last time, science is a changing front. Everything mm-hmm. is changing. Geology, anthropology, chemistry, f- philology. What is philology? Phil- Philio is love. Study of love? The branch of knowledge that deals with the structure, historical development, and relations of a language or languages. Philology is the study of language. <laughs> okay. So yeah, as all of these things are changing, as science is changing, we need to change our ideas as opposed to being a stick in the mud in the past. And therefore, it's necessary that we should reconsider our conception of education since we're learning more. And like she said in the last chapter, we science can't tell us everything, but it can tell us some things. Well, science is continuing to tell us more things. So therefore, when science tells us more things, we need to we need to we need to reconsider our conception of education and that's what she's doing throughout this chapter so first we talk about heredity as to heredity and we and, went into that a lot last time yeah this goes back to a lot of the stuff in the last chapter from uh, dr maudsley 
We're taught that heredity is by no means the simple and direct transmission of power and proclivity, virtue, and defect. So she's just kind of pointing back to say, hey, remember that conversation we already had? Remember that. We don't have to worry about it. So we can now move on. Two, is education formative? And I'm not quite sure what... All right, so what's the definition of formative? Is its work so purely formative as we thought? Is it directly formative at all? And how much of these drawing forth and strengthening of the several faculties, and that's Froebel, is education? So the definition of formative is serving to form something, especially having a profound and lasting influence on a person's development. So how much of education, and I think I, she doesn't capitalize it in the text, but she does capitalize it in the, the title. And how much of education, and I think that means formal education, and the science of education, which she does capitalize it when we're talking about science changing a front. Right. Well, so she gets in, so, so formative education, talking about the formal structure of the education. And she talks about, uh, she says, parents are very jealous over the individuality of their children. They mistrust the tendency to develop all on the same plan. And this instinctive jealousy is right because she holds the belief that each child is unique. Each child is a person and must be treated as such. And so therefore, if each child is a person, you can't have one formula, one educational formula for all children. And she, she gives us a comfort that the individuality and the personality of each person is too dear to God mm-hmm. and too necessary to humanity that it won't ever happen. So she 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 looks back and says, okay, this this sameness, this two peas in a pod will never happen totally because God cherishes it too much and he won't let it happen. But looking previously, um, she's talking about some of us have the uneasy sense that things are tending toward this deadly sameness, but indeed the fear is groundless. This popped up Common Core into my head. Common Core, it makes me think about all of the left-wing nonsense that ta- that's taught on college campuses that students just suck up. When, when you talk about the Evergreen University, and I'm going to look this one up because, because the story at Evergreen was ridiculous. So Brett Weinstein was a professor at the Evergreen State University, Evergreen State College, excuse me. And there was, there's a tradition at Evergreen State that the, uh, the, the black community would abstain from going to the school, be it students, faculty, staff, anybody there, there was a, there was a standing aside by the black community at Evergreen State that was meant to show, hey, we're people too. We're part of the system. We're an integral part of the system. And and although we might be a minority voice, we can't be ignored. And that was for just a day? And that was one day. It was okay. it's one day a year. It's an annual thing. And and there's a there's a name for it. I, I can't find it real quick right now. But it's an annual thing. And it's great. It it seems like a great a great reminder for for blacks, for whites, for everybody else that we're all important 
And when a part of your staff doesn't show up and when a part of your student body doesn't show up, things just don't work right. So this was, this was great. And, and Brett Weinstein was in full agreement that this was a good thing. What they decided then, uh, I guess it was either two or three years ago, was that the black community wouldn't abstain from going to school. The black community would force the white community to not come into school. And Brett Weinstein said, well, wait a minute. That's not okay. It's not okay to force people to not come to school. It's okay if, if as a group, we all decide that we're going to protest and make a statement and none of us are going to show up. That's great. That's your option. That's your, your proclivity. You can decide to not show up. Great. It's not okay to say, based on your skin color, you're not allowed to be here. Because... It's called the day of absence. There you go. Thank you. And so they decided to turn the day of absence from a day of absence for the black community to a forced day of absence for the white community. And Brett Weinstein was having none of it. He said, no, I'm, I'm going to be at school. You cannot stop me from going to school to do my job. That's racist. There is a huge difference between a group or coalition deciding to voluntarily absent themselves from a shared space in order to highlight their vital and underappreciated roles, which is the theme of the Douglas Turner Warner play of Day of Absence, as well as the recent Women's Day walkout, and a group encouraging another group to go away, he wrote. The first is a forceful call to consciousness, which is, of course, crippling to the logic of oppression. The second is a show of force and an act of oppression in and of itself. So this whole situation exploded because the progressive left-wing community, black, white, everyone else, they started persecuting the uh, this professor. They started persecuting Brett Weinstein and held the campus hostage, held the principal hostage, literally wouldn't let the principal leave his office unless he was escorted by multiple uh, students. Weinstein eventually got fired because of his stance. So, so when we talk about the fact that, yes, people's individual thoughts and ideas and personalities, she offers the fact that the fear is groundless. I don't know how groundless that fear actually is. Because we have things like what happened at Evergreen State College, where if anybody were to step back and think about what was going on for a minute, they'd, they'd go, oh yeah, no, that is very racist. In, but instead we had a mob start because this one white guy wouldn't leave campus. The, the same thing happens when uh, right-wing big names go to colleges to give speeches. Ben Shapiro is uh, one of those people. That, there are any number of people that when they are invited by the whatever college campus group that invites them, they then get protested out and people get violent around them because they don't want to hear their thoughts. And the schools bow and acquiesce to those protesters and say, well, yeah, th these people are spreading dangerous ideas. We don't need them coming to our school to, to get our children to think that way. So yes, the fear is groundless that People aren't going to be the same. These people are all individuals. But I think because of the state of the education in America right now, 
we're not turning out people that have ideas of their own. We're not turning out people that have personalities of their own. There are students who are, I guess, the loudest group of students right now are the group that have no ideas of their own and take all of their ideas seemingly blindly from their professors. I can kind of see where you're going with that. I don't really pull... I personally don't pull all of that out of this passage. No, I know. I know. But 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 when she started talking about children are individuals and then because the whole the whole idea the whole idea of indoctrinating children is something in something okay is so that when they come out they have the ideas that you want them to have and so when you indoctrinate children in the crazy left-wing politics from a young age on i.e. the random crazy sex or ed stuff honestly the, in the crazy white right-wing politics either or crazy white ring politics yeah you know whatever you want you can call whatever you're indoctrinating children in and she's talked about this before and we've talked about it with the hitler youth we're talking about it now with college campuses and the public school system but when you indoctrinate children you end up with adults that all think the same it reminds me i recently watched the new movie a wrinkle in time and it reminded me that the it, the brain power of that planet, was attempting to control everything by making everyone the exact same way and making them perfect in that way. Such that you had all the mothers come out at the same time, call all their children in the same way. They were bouncing the ball in the same way. Creepy. And it was, it was extremely creepy. And it was a very visual, impressive clip. So that that's that that two peas of the same pod, and we would be dying of weariness. Mm-hmm. But I I also looked up Common Core on their their page, and their one of the things that they said is their standards are to establish what the students need to learn, not how the teachers should teach, but what they should learn, and that should be uniform across the board, so that they're all ready to go into college. So there's that sameness, mm-hmm. yeah. and. And again, it, if it's still happening today, I don't see how that fear is not groundless. I guess uh, I disagree with Charlotte Mason. I, it, I completely disagree with Charlotte Mason. It's not groundless. It reminded me of another movie, Goodwill Hunting, the, the famous bar scene where Will and his buddies are in the bar and Chucky, his dimwit friend, gets into a, men- or a sparring match with a grad student. And the, the grad student says, uh, there's no problem. I was just hoping you'd give me some insight into the evolution of the market economy in the southern colonies. My contention is that prior to the Revolutionary War, the economic modalities, especially in the southern colonies, could most adapt, most aptly be characterized as agrarian per capita. And then Will Hunting interrupts. Of course that's your contention. You're a first-year grad student. You just got finished reading some Marxist history, Pete Garrison probably. You're going to be convinced of that until next month when you get to James Lemon. When you're going to be talking about the economics of Virginia and Pennsylvania were at entrepreneurial and capitalist way back in 1740. That's going to last until next year. You're going to be here and you're going to be here in here regurgitating Gordon Wood talking about, you know, the pre-revolutionary utopia and the capital forming effects on military mobilization. <laughs> and then the guy responds, well, as a matter of fact, I won't because Wood drastically underestimates the impact of Wood drastically underestimates the impact of social distinctions predicated upon wealth, especially inherited wealth. You got that from Vickers, work in Essex County, page 98, right? So the reason I bring this up is 
this this grad student, this smooth talking grad student, is just quoting what he's heard and what he's read. Just regurgitating what he's put into his mind. He's regurgitating information. Where Will, he's gotten his, oh gosh, where is it? Uh, see, the sad thing about a guy like you is about 50 years, you're going to start doing some thinking on your own. And you're going to come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you dropped 150 grand on an education you could have gotten for $1.50 in late charges at the public library. <laughs> what do you <laughs> And that's why we read books. And that's why we read books. A buck fifty in late charges. Now, what I will say is there's some language in that movie. It's rated R for a reason. So if you're not into language, this is not a movie for you. But great movie. Um, but yeah, so... so I'll, I'll have to try to get those clips and put them in our, our show notes. We'll, if I can. We'll have to see if we can get a non... Or a censored version. Okay. I'm just... I'm, I'm reading off of a... We'll look into of it. A, an annotated scene. Um, but the whole point of it is that this kid who has a library education can actually think for himself because he did all of his own reading and he thinks for himself. Whereas this university grad student, this university grad student doesn't think for himself. He just regurgitates information and he has no ability to think for himself. And we'll get that. We'll get to that a little bit later with Charlotte Mason, where she's saying that it's entirely possible to graduate from college Without ever having, without ever having experienced that vital stir which marks the inception of an idea. Well, she's better at talking good than I am. She writes. She writes gooder. She writes good too. <laughs> anyway, that's that's what uh, that's what came to my mind was a scene from Goodwill Hunting. I can't say I remembered that. It's a great scene. So then she starts talking about education as an overarching, you know, definition of education. She says, yeah, this, this is, this is not quite enough. Education is not what we need to do for our children. It's not what we need to do for ourselves. She goes into saying it's an, a life, but, but we have no word to imply the sustaining of this life. Education out to lead to draw and training they they don't work fully it's not enough to say we're drawing out or we're training to these children bringing up bringing up and and the words that come to my mind is bringing up in the fear and admonition of the lord hmm. and and just that's where that yeah. phrase is in my mind yeah so that's a fuller definition because it implies both an aim and an effort. But she's saying, you know, education in itself is so much more complex than just here's the facts. Yeah. Here's the information. She's saying education is a life. When she goes on to that in her next section, an adequate definition, education is a life. Education is a discipline. Education is an atmosphere. We'll have to back up just a little bit. The happy oh. phrase of Matthew Arnold. Education is an atmosphere, a discipline, a life. That is one of the hallmark phrases of Charlotte Mason. Like it's. It's everywhere. It's the phrase. All right. That's, that's the one that it's in one of her principles also. So my favorite part of this whole thing is there's a footnote and the footnote reads, the writer has not been able to trace the phrase in question. 
but this attribution persists in her memory. And Charlotte Mace is going, I know this phrase. I can't for the life of me find it. I know he said it. I know he said it. I can't find it. Matthew Arnold was a poet, an English poet from 1822 to 1888. And he was also an inspector of schools for Her Royal Majesty. And so he was in Her Majesty's Royal Service. He was. He might have known James Bond. Probably not. I think inspecting schools and uh, top secret agents don't necessarily have that much in common. They're both Her Majesty's Secret Service. I don't think he's in Secret Service. Oh, I guess I said <laughs> that. All right, never mind. <laughs> um. Anyways, and so one of the things he did with that role <laughs> was give critical commentary on education of the the way it was in the day. Interesting. So he came up as in his poet's mind came up with this this threefold definition of education. So that's interesting. He was a poet, but his day job was a school inspector. Yeah. Wow. Okay. There are some fascinating lives that that she's just she's name dropping and looking into each of these people. It's like, whoa, he did what? That's interesting. And how how many jobs did he have? And how many <laughs> times did he flop what he wanted to do? And I'm so glad I have. He you was to do so confused. <laughs> All right. So then she moves on to an adequate definition, where she regurgitates that information again. And I don't know if you have anything in that well, section. Subjectively, it's a life. Objectively, it's a discipline. Relatively, it's an atmosphere. She pulls out three conceivable points of view and says, we'll talk about it later. Right now, we're looking at parents as inspirers. So she like plants that nugget and says, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. So, File that away. <laughs> exactly. So she goes into... Okay, our role as inspirers is to give birth into the second life, mm -hmm. and we need to sustain this higher life that we have now born. And the way to that end is a method. So she's she's giving terminology for where she's mm -hmm. headed. So the method, a way to an end. It is only as we recognize our limitations that our work becomes effective. When we see definitely what we are to do, what we can do, and what we cannot do, we set to work with confidence and courage. So as a professional, I really like this, this sentence because one of the most important things I run into, especially training young engineers, is you have got to know what you don't know. You, you have got to know that when you look at a problem, you can say, I don't know how to solve that. I'm not even going to waste my time trying. I'm going to go find someone that has solved that or has solved something like it. I'm going to call a colleague. I'm going to, I'm going to search the internet. I'm going to find someone who knows how to solve that. And then you learn by working with those people. As opposed to just muddling it out yourself. As opposed to muddling it out yourself. Someone else has already done the work. Lean on someone else. So I, I really, I really liked that because, because only when you know what you're truly good at, can you move forward in your job with confidence and courage. And it's true with everything else. Only when you know what you're good at can you actually do that thing well. Uh, sports analogy here. Uh, so I'm a basketball nerd. 
there are a lot of basketball players who want to be something they're not, who want to be primary ball handlers, who want to be the guy that makes all the passes and who want to be Stephen Curry. Yeah, they they might want to be Steph Curry. When no, you're not really good at dribbling the ball. You need to stand over in the corner and you need to learn how to run really fast around screens. Or no, you're really big. Little guys are going to take the ball away from you because there's just too much distance from your hand to the ground. You need to do what really big guys do. Push people around and dunk the ball really hard. And if you've got some other skills, great. We can incorporate those. But you're really big. Be really big. And so in the sports world, you can't reach your pinnacle until you understand what you're good at and what you're not good at. And you quit doing the things you're not good at. And you focus on what you are good at. I think it's that don't do what you're not good at. And and that that it gets tripped up in our minds, in our American minds. Mm-hmm. You know, no, you can, you can do anything. You can do anything you want to do. You can yep. be anything you want to be. And when we tell you, no, you cannot do that, then you're like, but, but I can. But I was told that I can be anything that I want to be. Again, another sports analogy. If you want to be a horse jockey, you have to be small. Yeah. I'm 5'10". I cannot be a horse jockey. I wanted to be a horse jockey. And then I hit puberty. (laughs) (laughs) And and then you're bigger than the weight that the horse is allowed to carry total. Uh Uh-huh. Without the saddle, without the gear, without anything. You just, you're heavier. Yep. And that just doesn't work. You physically cannot do it. And I guess airline uh, flight attendants, I think they have height uh, restrictions. I could believe that. And pilots have uh, vision restrictions. Vision restrictions, yeah. And so once you know what you cannot do, you're free to you're you're freed to go do the things that Mm -hmm. you can do. It's the same thing as when we were talking about putting boundaries on our children. Boundaries, as in, you can play in this specified area. Or we talked about when we had all of the toys out, they wouldn't know what to do. But when we gave them a small selection of toys, then all of a sudden they were allowed to be creative Mm -hmm. and play however they wanted and do whatever they wanted. It's the same idea. When we limit ourselves to what we're actually good at, we find that we can do all kinds of different things, even if it's based on that one thing we're good at. Mm -hmm. So I, I, coming back to Charlotte Mason, I really liked that little section because I think it's applicable not just for children or parents or school or education. It's in our work. Yeah. So our limitations that are work. So it, yeah. it applies to all peoples in all walks of life. At all at all ages in all places. I guess it it uh, applies to it applies to aging with grace. Absolutely. Knowing that as you get older, there are certain things that you just cannot do anymore. And that there are certain things you can do now. Mm-hmm. Which, which is hard to to grasp. We're, we're in our early 30s. And so yeah. I guess we're kind of edging towards that tipping point of mm-hmm. we're not young. And there are some things we can't do anymore. But we're not old. Mm-hmm. So we're not running into... Those health limitations. Yeah. But how do you get from one point to the other with grace? I don't know. But looking again at a sports analogy, because again, I'm an NBA nerd. 
you see examples of players who age very, very poorly. Allen Iverson is a guy that aged so poorly. He was a great player. As soon as his body started failing him, the dude fell off a cliff. He went from being one of the most important players in the league to being out of the league in a very short time period. And I know this because my team traded for him and then had him at the tail of his career. And it was hard to watch him play because he fell off a cliff, but he couldn't play any other way. He I, couldn't He couldn't visualize where his career needed to go. Right. Well, you've got Kobe Bryant also. Kobe Bryant did the same thing. And Brett Favre. Brett Favre. And football analogies kind of break down a little bit because of how specialized the role is. But yeah, Brett Favre was another example of that. On the other side, an example of someone who ages gracefully, um, in the football world, you have Peyton Manning, where Peyton Manning was one of the best quarterbacks of all time for a long time. Then he broke. Then he went to the to the Denver Broncos. And the year that they won the Super Bowl, he was not a good quarterback. He, he was not. He could not throw well. He couldn't move. Uh, there's a clip of him trying to slide, and he he fails. It's funny. Um, he he went for he scrambled, and he gets tackled, and he went to the sideline, and the coach is like, "Please, please don't ever do that again." <laughs> and Manning's there going, "I know that it was hurts. a bad choice," <laughs> but he was able to use the guys around him to to go win a Super Bowl. An example from the NBA world would be someone like Vince Carter. Now, if you know the NBA, you'd know that Vince Carter is one of the most insane dunkers in NBA history. The hops that that guy had, the acrobatic feats that he would do in the lane, in traffic, were insane. At this point, he's one of two of the oldest players in the NBA. He can still jump and he can still dunk sometimes, but he's become a role player. He comes off the bench. He plays maybe 12, 15 minutes a game. He shoots threes. He defends well. He rebounds. He boxes out. He does the little things now for 12 minutes a game. And you're like, oh, Vince Carter. Yeah, I'd love to have him on my team to be that veteran presence who's also good for 10 to 15 minutes a game. Who can settle all of the other young bucks. Yeah. So you see, you see examples of that in the sports world. And I think it's it's easy to see in the sports world because it's such a it's such a shortened timeline. You go from being a rookie when you're 18, 19, 20 to you're retired in your late 30s, and that's your entire career. So it's a career lasting at most 20 years. Did I do that math right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you make it into your 20th year, you're all of your peers are like, "Oh, I don't even remember when you were a rookie. When I started watching basketball, you were already kind of an old guy." Whereas in in business or in life, we don't see that happening until people have to get actually old Mm -hmm. and then they age gracefully or they don't. But -hmm. it's harder to see that in our lifetime because, well, we're currently living our life also. Yeah, we're currently living our life. So I can't look at my peers and see their entire journey through their career. Like I'm the same age as LeBron James. I've gotten to watch him as a peer go from amazing high school player to the king, quote unquote, and he's still amazing. He's going to fall off of a cliff. And I'm excited to watch how he does. I'm excited to watch if he can age gracefully. Do you I think he, he will? I have no idea. I really don't. I hope he can. 
I hope he doesn't end up being like Kobe, where he just, he hits a wall and then that's the end of it and he can't change his game. I truly hope he can because I love watching him play. I also enjoy watching him lose, but I enjoy watching him play. He's just so good. So I hope he has a long, sustained career and he changes his game numerous times. I don't know. I don't know if he'll age gracefully. I hope so. There we go. But I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't. So the the rest of this little section, she also says it rests with parents not only to give their children birth into the life of intelligence and moral power, but to sustain the higher life when they have born, which they have born. Reading is hard. So just another callback to the fact that the parents are responsible for that second birth for their children. So we're going to end part one of chapter four right there. And we'll pick up part two next time. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening. Check us out at charlottemasonsays.com. If you enjoy what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. If you want to get a hold of us, email us at charlottemasonsays at gmail.com. Or join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cmsays. So this is chapter IV, uh, four, chapter four. I'm good at Roman numerals.